Good evening, good evening, and welcome back to um, Wheat from the Chat. Um, I'm Mike, and it is the 26th of July today. Um, we're here for our July um, episode. Um, yeah, and thanks everyone for joining us. Um, I'm back in the studio this month after Dave sort of rode solo last month. Um, and we've got two very exciting guests with us this evening, but I'll let them do some introduction for us a wee bit later. Um, but yeah, how are you doing, Dave? How's your month been? Yeah, month's been great. You did leave me riding solo as you went off on your bike all the way across northern France. Um, yes. How did you do in the Tour de France? Uh, Tour de France was good. Did yeah. some pretty um, good ascents. Good. Got king of the hill on at least two of the stages, which was nice. I also carried like all of my mate's stuff for one of the legs of the journey because she kind of lost a bit of energy. So I not only had to carry all of my camping gear, I had to carry hers, but survived. No broken bones, which good. is good. Um, did come back and immediately fall off my motorbike for the second time, um, which may be the end of that as a mode of transport for me, but we'll have to see. And that definitely wasn't on the same corner as you fell off on the first oh, time. It may, have, it? it may have been okay. on the same corner, possibly. And also with a va another van coming towards me. But um, no broken bones again this time, thankfully. So that's good. And I've been out of work throughout. So Good. good. Yeah. You yeah, know, well. it's, it's, it's a bit mad. I just uh, threw my hands up in disbelief when you said... It's July 26th. <laughs> and I was like, that surely can't be the case. <laughs> like, we're looking outside, it's autumnal. I've been working on a winter sewing schedule um, today, and oh, wow. uh, yet it still feels like it should be about April or May. Um, the, wee, the, the months are just absolutely flying by. Um, it's, it's, going, it's being a bit crazy. Um, I think we've got everything in the ground now and we're now actually down at Schumacher flipping beds that aren't necessarily having any successional kind of like things happening into them mm, and starting mm. to think about sowing green manures for yeah. getting them established and everything um, which also feels incredibly scary and incredibly early in the year um, but you know it's just where we are you know it is July it's um been very wet again we it were has, complaining yeah. about the lack of rain a couple of months ago <laughs> and now it's uh autumnal yes no Devon, distinctly distinctly autumnal i mean we're growers dave we can't not complain about the weather i guess well no i don't um but no it has been particularly the last week or so it's been kind of like a bit topsy-turvy transitioning from sort of like march like days to to then feeling like july and yes. then suddenly being March again. Like this morning, it was cold. Like it was actually quite chilly when I left. Oh, house. I, I but, uh, um. <laughs> put my uh, winter corduroy dungarees on yesterday to go into the field. Um, oh, wow, okay. You know, uh, named by, uh, made by a particular consumer ethical brand, um, who I won't name. Um, very comfortable they are. And, we are seeking uh, advertisers. There, actually. We're seeking advertisers. Yeah, yes, so yeah, no, I know. I'd love, yeah, uh, that would be great. Uh, put them on in the morning thinking like this is absolutely fine mm. no it got to about midday and was just absolutely roasting and unfortunately <laughs> people don't want you working in your boxer shorts in henry's field when we've got for 14 students walking around it's schumacher so, college though, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so no it's been yeah it's been a strange old time yeah it has but everything in the field's going well is it everything's going well yes um a little bit of blossom end rot happening on some tomatoes, mm -hmm. a little bit of calcium deficiency there. Going to be roasting some eggs shortly. You know about this? Yeah. Yeah. What, as in the eggshell? Yeah. For so calcium. You, yeah, roast yes, the eggshells, yeah. ferment them in apple cider vinegar. 
lovely little addition oh, yeah. then. So yeah, we're going to be uh, got a few students who are interested in doing that kind of thing. So yeah, that's exciting. really good. Um, yeah, as a folio spray. Yeah, that was the. Oh, uh, yes. If anyone picked that up, that was the voice of one of our guests who uh, chiming in. Yes, yeah, um, we yeah, should yeah, let them speak at some point. Exactly, we? we should. But, uh, <laughs> no, I'm really excited about uh, today. Uh, mm, we should probably. Mm. Like, get on yeah, we probably should move on. I mean, I just the one thing I did want to say when you were talking about timing is that you're right, it is July. And um, at School Farm last week, we harvested about 160 kilos of tomatoes. And I think we, we were questioning whether we've reached peak tomato and whether that was the, the height of the summer harvest. Wow. And maybe from next week onwards, we'll, we'll see a sort of downward trend into, into autumn, as you said. So, yeah, the summer does feel a little bit like it's dwindling, which is a yeah. bit sad. So just on that, and I find yes, tomatoes really interesting because um, they seem to be the one, yeah, they seem to be the one veg that mm. people outdo themselves to see how many different varieties they're growing <laughs> of, even at a market gardening scale. Yes, so yes. I think we're growing a dozen different varieties down in Schumacher at the moment. Mm, so how mm. many are you guys growing at School Farm? Because your poly, your glass houses are huge. Oh yeah, we've got a big, we've got a lot of glass house space at School Farm, which is great. Um, in terms of varieties wise, I should I should know this actually by being sort of a bit more aware of the crop plan. Um, we've definitely got at least ten different varieties of tomato, and we've got about six varieties of chili um, at Badderford with. Um, green ginger we, we're growing sort of 32 varieties of chili plants that's this great. year so that seems to be our kind of maybe where we're branching out and the tomatoes are less of our sort of proverbial waving contest um, but yeah no you're right people do yeah. I think it's the mix because you, you do get a bit of value for doing a sort of mix of heritage heritage toms I guess but but you're right it does seem to be one of those metrics of like who can do the most varieties it's just um, yeah it's a bit of a funny one where yeah. people seem to really get carried away with wanting to sow all these many different types of Solanaceae and yeah know, exactly and then Half just one, one version anything. of spuds yeah, you yeah, know, that's the poor true. spud. <laughs> well, it's it's a treat for the eyes, Dave. <laughs> <laughs> right, but, enough of us waffling. Yes, no, we indeed, try and introduce definitely. our guests or let them introduce themselves. So, yeah. today we have Matteo and Basil from Higher Farm in Somerset, and. We've been trailing these guys coming on for a while now, um, and Mike and I have been both really, really excited about having you both on. Um, mm. Not only because of what we're you know, really interested in understanding your backgrounds, where you've come from, both quite different, um, which I think is really interesting, understanding what you're wanting to do with Hire Farm, because you know it's slightly larger than the scale that we normally talk to people about, which I think is really interesting. Um, but then also, you know, understanding a little bit about how your backgrounds have brought you to this place and what you're looking to do to actually finance the farm and the business which is related to it. Um, which again, I think is a really interesting story and an interesting avenue in this world of agroecology as we try and start thinking about transitioning away potentially from scale being about number, like large acreage and scale being about distribution and about what we can potentially do and, and how we can potentially shift the dial on, on a number of different things. But anyway, that's why I think and Mike are really interested in having you both on. So um, Basil, Matteo, I don't know who wants to go first, but why don't you introduce yourselves and tell us a little bit about your background and how you've come to the Hire Farm project. Lovely. Okay, yeah, I'm happy to go first. 
Um, so yeah, my name is Basil or Jean Basil Gibson. Um, yeah, where to start with your journey? I suppose um, getting interested in as a young person, very interested probably from the age of about fifteen onwards in social justice, in political theory, in ecology, and in I guess environmental sort of activism, and finding a deeply frustrating world to be in. <laughs> so. I was working in adult social care, so I felt like I was contributing something, but I didn't feel like I was embodying my principles in a daily basis. Mm. So from that frustration, I guess, I don't quite know how I found it, but I found a permaculture design course and applied to do it. That was a two-week residential course with probably some people you know, Aranya and uh, Caroline Aitken. Did that about seven years ago, and it just blew my mind. I just thought, this is the way. This is how we got to do things, you know. It was such a comprehensive, whole systems kind of approach to life and to growing. And I guess it really just turned me on to all of these ideas and gave me a vehicle in which I could, as I say, embody my, my principles. So from there, I then went to, um, I converted a van and went woofing, did lots of work away projects all around Europe, in Spain, France and Portugal mostly. So living off grid in lots of communities all sorts of settings, spiritual communities, um, permaculture projects, hippie <laughs> communities, all sorts. We built barns, we grew food, uh, met a lot of interesting people and eventually found myself in France working at a luxury chateau hotel kind of thing where I was kind of the assistant grower there, so growing vegetables and was working alongside a consultant who was designing agroforestry systems for them. Also found that quite frustrating, just living and working within an organization that didn't really feel like it had a cohesive direction. Mm. And I was living on site there and kind of like not, like it's a luxury chateau, but that is not how I experienced the place like at all. <laughs> um, even being a vegetarian, a vegan even when I was there, like not being provided with the sort of food that I like to eat. Mm. Like you say vegetarian and they just go, quoi? <laughs> um, so after that I found myself on a small holding um, still the most beautiful piece of land I've ever seen in my life it was a family that were growing flowers um, and the daughter of that family was a florist one of the top eco florists in France really amazing talented person and uh, yeah so I sort of helped grow a little bit of the flowers but mostly I, I grew us all of our food so we became relatively self-sufficient in fruit and veg and then just as passion projects, I was doing all sorts of fertility building with wormeries, with rapid hot compost, with uh, compost teas. And because of my love of agroforestry, I was designing and implementing basically myself forest gardens. Mm. So growing them out and we had lots of animals and chickens and yeah, I sort of just loved the life really. And I guess I was there for about 18 months or so, moving around a lot was super busy renovating the house, all sorts of things. And I kind of felt like I'd got to a point where I needed to move on and go and do something else. And I found this master's course at Schumacher College, which was the master's which I did last year here and met you two gorgeous humans. And uh, yeah, so that was that finished in October and now, um, yeah, moving on to the next, the next stage, next things with this lovely man, mm -hmm. Matteo Grasso, who I think is probably about to introduce himself. Um, do I have to get closer to the thing? Um, yeah, I uh, <clears throat> I started a food business outside, uh, sort of just yeah, first year of uni, and then started 
exploring food more and going deeper into the discussion of food and decided to start a business that looks sort of more holistically at food systems, um, how we can help um, people basically to eat better. And we formed a company and now are working on Higher Farm, <laughs> which is what Basil's doing with me and my other amazing friends and business partners. And that's about it, really. <laughs> not as not as long life story as Basil. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a bit younger than him. So I was going to say Basil's got what, ten years on you. Yeah, so, exactly. yeah. Well, there's yeah. this centropics bit, which I find quite interesting. So if you, uh, yeah, I guess I think the centropics is interesting um, from maybe like your perspective because of the way you look at farming and you know more about it. For me, I see them all really as the same um, natural farming. That's a big rhetoric we have actually at Higher Farm. It's about trying to understand that we're all looking to uh, develop nature-centric, growing, eating, um, any sort of food system. And But yeah, I, I was in Mexico and in Australia working with Syntropic Farmers, which is basically natural agroforestry in the tropics. Mm. Um, yeah. Nice. So... Whichever of you would like to do this, why don't you describe for us a little bit so the listeners can get a little bit more aware of like what's happening around the kind of higher farm organisation and like the kind of like the structure of it and what you're looking to do from a kind of outreach and a, and I guess a business perspective from with higher farm. Mm. Should I do that one? Go for it, man. I think from the business and organisational point of view, yeah. So. Um, Everything we're trying to do, I would say, is categorized by holistic thinking, systems thinking, uh, looking at, at, at the problem as a whole. So Higher Farm is really is, is a space that looks at various parts of the food system. So, of course, we've got growing, uh, which is kind of the, the crux of it. But around that we've also introduced revenue streams you know um, activities that say that that support it to to take the way we grow food into the community so education uh, we've got a restaurant we've got a farm shop we've got really accessible and affordable accommodation um, and yeah that's what really higher farm is is becoming as well because it keeps changing basically every time <laughs> i sit down with basil but at the heart of it, where our values stand, um, we, we know we're trying to give access uh, to local natural food choices. And it's about delving deeper and deeper into that constantly. And how can High Farm become a space that continuously scales that in, in our locality um, as mm. much as possible? So, yeah, that's the, the business model, more or less. Mm. And it's... Um, it's I guess it's like it's quite a nascent it's in its very nascent stages at yeah. the moment this project and like where so where are you at now you've obviously bought bought this farm in Castle Carey is it near in Somerset yeah um what's I don't know could you just talk us a little bit about your kind of I um, know, first few years of where you feel like this may go and what what parts of that enterprise or what parts what enterprises of as part of that bigger mission are like in place and what will become in the next season or two 
Yeah, so what we've done is we phased the business um, strategy. Uh, so um, I would call it a soft test, basically. So it's looking at within the, um, the branches of the project that we want to roll out, how can we soft test those um, for then getting research analysis um, and then scaling them out later on. So, for example, you know, we do eventually would love to have a massive eatery, which, you know, can host maybe 100 to 200 people. But for now, we're going to use one of the barns and have a small cafe there. We've got, I don't know if you've seen the Higher Shire, um, but I am um, quite funny. <laughs> I love it when I find that. The Higher Shire was, <laughs> the Higher Shire was basically and originally just some cabins so that we could host people. We realized from very early on that access to the property needs to be established if we want to achieve access to food. Mm. So it's all mm. good having all of this amazing stuff, but if no one can freaking get there, there's no point. So uh, there was cabins and then it was a really smart, in my opinion, approach because having cabins as opposed to building large accommodation blocks, you can scale very naturally and organically. Mm. So an accommodation block might cost you, I don't know, definitely you know, in the hundreds of thousands of pounds, a cabin cost us you know, 10,000 pounds. So that allows us to, as the business grows year on year, add one on. So that's where it started. And then I was watching Laws of the Rings about <laughs> a month ago. And, uh, <laughs> and my brother, who's obviously really involved in the project, loves Laws of the Rings. So we decided to build a shire. <laughs> so the Hobbiton Shire. Um, but yeah, in answer to your question, we're doing a phase soft launch approach. So. Same with the farming systems, as I'm sure Basil will tell you. Start with one field, <clears throat> go out, you know, so we're only going to be farming, I think, what is it, five acres at the start, more or less? Yeah, I mean, in terms of in intensive intensive production, it'll yeah. be about four, four and a half acres worth to, to then, begin with. And then go out from there because, you know, we don't know what's going to happen. Any business where you're looking at doing something new, uh, it, it, you know, you've got to take it slow, I think. For sure, yeah. Yeah, I guess maybe just to to speak to speak to where we're actually at now. I mean, actually, there's there's not a lot happening right now. We actually only moved into the farm a month ago. Yeah, you know, we're not even living on site. We live around the corner, so we've identified the site. There are reasons why it's been chosen. I mean, I know Matteo wanted it to have some close links to London, but also its location is very important to us. Mm -hmm. The mm -hmm. fact that we have. Um, like-minded community around us in places like Froome and Glastonbury was felt quite important. Um, we've got places like Bruton just around the corner as well. So we also have a route to market potentially into mm. some really good restaurants. Castle Kerry itself has got a train station mm -hmm. so people can walk to us from 20 minutes away. The land itself was in really good condition. It had everything on there and it was actually for a really good price, I think probably from what's on the market. Um, so yeah. And what's actually there right now is is ideas and plans. You know, mm -hmm. like we've gone through a very comprehensive design process, site surveying. We've got ecological surveys going on, so people are baselining the land. Mm -hmm. We're understanding what we have there before we move forward. Um, so certainly from my point of view, what we did when we came in was a, a comprehensive survey of the land. Mm -hmm. So we're understanding where all of our microclimates are, what kind of slopes we've got, what kind of soils we've got. Um, looking at all of the data around for what the climate, climatic situation is, what are the average rainfalls, all this sort of information so that we can 
build up a, a holistic context of the area mm. and what then we can design around and what are our limiting factors, what kind of exposure do we have. So, I mean, mm. if you want to know more about the actual land itself and its makeup, I'm very happy to. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I, I think one thing to add to that, which is quite interesting because I didn't, it wasn't in my initial sort of approach, but I think we did a comprehensive community survey as well. Mm. But basically when Basil joined, he said, you know, you've got to get to know the community here. And that wasn't in my mindscape. Mm. Uh, you know, I wasn't, I never set up a business where, and we went and, you know, door knocked and mm. really got to know people. Mm. <clears throat> and that was immensely uh, um, important, I think. Really, I mean, yeah, it, it could have also completely changed our decision if we knocked on a neighbor's door and they said, you know, we're really not interested in this, please leave. Mm. Um, <laughs> but luckily they didn't and we got the complete reverse and we've got now a wonderful community who are looking like they're going to support us in this project. And, you know, we're building a project with a community, not mm. for a community, mm. is something that I think is really important for anyone setting up any project anywhere. Mm outside of food or whatever is just think about your community and that's something that Basil really brought to the table mm -hmm. so I thought that'd be for important to add. It, it was actually quite decisive in getting the property in the end wasn't it? Yeah 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 actually that's like our idea. offer was accepted on the basis yeah. that the community went to the yeah. the owner and seller and said like please yeah. you have oh, to wow. sell it to those guys yeah. and wow. actually for yeah. a price lower yeah. than the highest bid. Yeah. Oh, amazing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So so that's really interesting and and Basil before I take you up on like going into a little bit more about like higher farm and things like that you guys are kind of painting a picture which has an awful lot of kind of solutions within it. So, you know, you're thinking about um, the accommodation, you've been talking to the community, you've been bringing people on board, you know, you're doing all of the surveying, you're thinking kind of in a very holistic kind of manner. But if we just take a step back for a moment, I'd be really interested in just understanding a little bit more about, from your perspective, the problem and the problems that you know you you see that we're facing within food systems and within food production and things in the UK that you believe mm. Higher Farm can be a solution mm. to. Mm. Um, so just if any thoughts <clears throat> kind of pop into your head Ooh. on that. <laughs> <laughs> Where to start, Dave? My yeah. God, problems in the food system, and that we're specifically addressing. Yeah, <laughs> I think like, what, you know why why is Higher Farm needed right now? You know. Well, aside from the fact that you, it's difficult, uh, there's not an, enough availability of local, well, fully agroecological food. I mean, I'm not even talking about organic here. Mm. I'm talking way beyond organic, where we're getting our nutrient qualities of our food to very, very high levels. So a matter of availability. I mean, then access is another enormous issue. Quite how we will specifically tackle that. You know, there's a lot of ideas, mm -hmm. but... You know, we don't want to live in a world where essentially really good quality food is only available to those who can afford it. Mm. So we're acutely aware of that, but we're also aware of the fact that we're trying to run a business and we have to try and make money. So then comes in all of these poly income strategies. So lots of things that subsidize the food, but we don't also want to subsidize food. We want food mm -hmm. to, yes. we want a fair price for it. You know, like poly income strategy is great and everything and it can make you have wider level of employment and have a bit bigger impact on a community and you know do all sorts of amazing things but ultimately food shouldn't be subsidized unless mm. the whole mm. system wants to subsidize mm -hmm. it and make it a human right then fine yep. let's do that but we live in a market-driven economy and we want everybody to have access to it 
So, I mean, again, I'm not sure how we're going to tackle that, but we're going to try our very best. There's all sorts of, I know School Farm actually do a scaled pricing model, which mm. is pretty cool. Mm. Definitely interested in forms of gift economy. We have mm -hmm. our direct community around us. So we'd probably work very closely with people that live on our front door, you know, like and in terms of our sort of sphere of community right there, like zone zero, people maybe would just get greater access, quite mm -hmm. how we'll do that, I'm not mm -hmm. sure. Again, like maybe just a food stall that they can come and collect mm -hmm. vegetables from or a volunteer basis where they can come and just get food. Um, yeah. <clears throat> I think on, on my side, problems that we're seeing and facing, definitely the, the food choice, the food culture, the things that we were speaking about earlier, mm -hmm. um, you don't, you know, we can obviously sit here and talk about like global industrial food systems, but you know, I think painting the hyper-local picture is enough for us to start. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. We, I basically went and did what I called a sort of food choice analysis in the local towns. And, you know, you'll find yourself in Shepton Mallet at 7 p.m. and your food choices are sort of Domino's, the local kebab shop, and some frozen food from Iceland that's a hyper-local problem that Hire Farm can directly address. And it can't be a surprise to us that, you know, Shepton Mallet has a degrading health situation um, if that's the situation of our food choices. So that's, you know, uh, a very clear point that mm. I think we want to address. And I think finding clear points for your projects to address in food is really important because, yep. you know, you end up being a dreamer and a visionary, which is beautiful. But where am I going to start and who am I going to help is something that everyone needs to think about, you know, first step. So we're sitting here, we've got local towns, local people who we can inspire to eat better through education, through movement, content, events, whatever. Plus, we've got food being grown that we can feed them and we can create a whole sort of, you know, food cultural revolution even if it's just in those towns, that'd be beautiful. Mm, we'll mm. take that for sure, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah. So you said, I think you mentioned the farm, Higher Farm takes place over, is it 50 acres, the, the land that you've got at the moment? Could you like talk through a little bit about, I guess for the people at home, a little bit of a breakdown of what that land would be used for? Because I know you mentioned at the beginning that maybe five acres would go towards food growing at the beginning. Um, and then obviously you've mentioned the higher Shire as this being mm -hmm. accommodation space for bringing people onto the, onto the farm, which is amazing to have that sort of accessibility to the land really ingrained in the project from the get-go. But, and you mentioned like the eatery and like educational yeah. aspects. I don't know, do you have a sort of mind of like as to how that 50 acres might be used? And I know Basil at the pub before we were talking about agroforestry and food forests and um, yeah. Matteo, you mentioned about like a fermentary and other things. I don't know. Yeah, it'd be interesting to kind of see what sort of scale of growing you're going to be doing on the site, um, as well as all these periphery and, and enterprise stacking this poly income model as well. Sure. Why don't you do the growing systems and then I'll do the buildings? Mm. <laughs> Sounds about right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, so 50 acres of which we've got 20 acres of flat uh, flat land, good quality soil. We were discussing this earlier. <laughs> that our, our soil tests have come back 16% organic matter, which is definitely wrong. It has to be because <laughs> that would be, be peatland. But... Um, 
Yeah. Regenerative Pete. Regenerative Pete. Not sure that quite well. Um, so yeah, I mean, of that that flat, that's where we're thinking about intensive production because the rest of it is about 30 acres worth where we have sort of north-facing slopes, mm. uh, quite exposed, and then south-facing slopes, which are also to some degree exposed, but they're south-facing. Um, so we'll be focusing our intensive production in that uh, 20 acres in the in the lowlands, uh, starting with initially, like I was telling you, yeah, about a four and a half acre, five acre agroforestry market garden, which will be extremely diverse. So the way we're thinking about agroforestry, and it does borrow to some degree stuff from you know forest gardening mm. and syntropics and all of these ideas around just maximizing diversity, maximizing the amount of uh, different sorts of roots and root depths, and therefore the associates in the soil. So our agroforestry rows, we're going to do top fruit, but underneath that, we're going to be thinking about either some sort of climbing species, probably hops or possibly hops. Not <laughs> sure how we'll harvest that. Definitely complicated, <laughs> but we're interested in it. And then perennial vegetables. And then we're intending to do a lot of uh, nutrient cycling and create a lot of biomass, which we will chip in situ, chop and drop mm. in situ can pretty much continuously, which is definitely borrowing from syntropics. Mm. And then in the alleys in between, the idea is to do market gardening, so growing mm. a, a massive range of vegetables. Um, that'll be dictated by whatever routes to market we absolutely establish. Again, part of our sort of holistic uh, visioning for the place was going out and speaking to restaurants, speaking to farm shops, finding out what people actually want. Uh, we'll also probably be employing a head gardener to, to manage the vegetable side of things. So also what they want to do. So we're, mm. we're not set on everything just yet. Yes. Yeah. Uh, but top fruit, soft fruit, perennials, so asparagus, um, yeah, all that sort of thing. We also want to keep livestock. At this point, we don't, so, I mean, as part of that system, we'll also rotate chickens through it. So mm -hmm. there'll be layers, so, so eggs. So that's fertility building. It's also compost creation yes. and it's fun. Yeah. Because <laughs> um, we like having fun. Um, Sometimes. So, all the time. <laughs> um, and then outside of that, yeah, we'll be, we want to keep livestock. I'm not sure if we're going to milk them or kill that many of them, but we'll certainly have them about. Okay. <laughs> That's fair. Just because they're nice. I mean, I don't know. Matteo maybe will talk a bit more about what he wants to do with livestock. I'm, I'm undecided at this point. Uh, then we've got another field, which is about three and a half acres, which we're going to do a forest garden in mm, and have okay. a, a wildlife pond and habitat there. So the forest garden will produce food. It will produce diversity of different crops. It will also produce flowers and quite pe peculiar and interesting things, which if we find a route to market for, we will sell. Mm. However, we will be aiming to run a plant nursery out of it. Mm. So nice. another way of... Making poly income, yeah. Yeah, poly income. And the fact that we just, we, I mean, I have a personal passion for it, so <laughs> needs to be done. Uh, and then on that north, the north-facing slopes, we're going to do a native forest regeneration project. Okay. So that is, at least in my opinion, I think a certain amount of farmland or a certain amount of land, especially when you have north-facing slopes, mm. which aren't going to be productive. Mm -hmm. It feels right to me to put that over to something, give, let's say, giving back to nature, which is in itself a problematic <laughs> to say. But well, yeah, possibly. 
possible. Questionable. We, 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 we could, we could, we could, uh, we could digress, but, we're, but <laughs> not just yet. Yeah. Not just yet. Uh, so yeah, a native forest, and as we come up the slopes, we're thinking silvopastoral systems with animals mm, running okay. through. Again, possibly giving opportunities to grazers to come in. So regenerative grazers, people that want to do calf mm. at hoof. So ideally, we'd rent it out to them. We could also help mm. them with their routes to market because we aim to establish a lot of that through mm. our other mm. business ventures. Um, so yeah, that's more or less a breakdown of it. Sounds good. Mm. Yeah, I mean that four and a half acres of market garden is actually more than enough to start with. Certainly, certainly. Yeah, I mean like we could scale that out into the other fields as we as mm. we progress, mm. or we could give that over to a farm start project. So yeah, other people that want to come in that could that have good ideas, we've got enough to manage. Mm. I mentioned the pond. Yeah, Matteo wants to do fish in the pond. I'm. Undecided. Okay, very <laughs> interesting. Just quickly before, because I know my question was a bit too pronged and method, and I, we haven't touched on the sort of additional things to the market a garden and the, the growing spaces or the land use, I guess, widely. Um, what would your sort of routes to market be, which I guess would touch upon this from that market garden initially? Would it be mostly going to on-site production in the sort of eating spaces or would it be retail, box schemes, direct to market, who, who knows? <laughs> Um, you want to talk? You want me to talk? Um, I you talk, you talk, you talk. I'll talk, you okay. Talk. Uh, yeah, so I mean, in the first instance, we probably, we will have an on-site farm shop, mm-hmm. hopefully. It depends, because we've got a development project running alongside this where we have to renovate buildings. That yes. involves a lot of planning and it involves a lot of logistics and it's a bit up in the air at this point. If we have an on-site farm shop, then that'll probably be where we'll sell it. Mm-hmm. But also we'll be developing routes to market direct to consumers. Matteo and his brother are also developing a food community platform. Mm-hmm. So that is ideally where we'll be selling through in the future. This first year, I think we will be taking it as a soft test, yeah. So we'll sell it wherever we can. Mm-hmm. So restaurants, direct into retail, and direct to consumers through a box scheme. If the food community platform's up, then through that. If it isn't, yes, then maybe yeah. through Ubi mm, or okay. one of the existing platforms that can help us with that sort of thing. Nice. And then inviting people <clears throat> to the site and to sell, sell and direct. And cart. And yeah, I do, have, I do have ideas to get a horse and cart and just sort of ride into town. With a, like a traveling merchant. Like a traveling merchant, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> like Gandalf, sort of. I'm not sure I could pull off Gandalf just yet, but something similar. Yeah. <laughs> Real Lord of the Rings vibe to this whole thing. Yeah. It's a continuation of the theme. No, good, no. So I think um, the second half of your question, uh, Mike. Yes, yeah. of course, um, yeah. Sorry, Mateo. Mateo and what just, was it again, the, the the building side to the... Yeah, yeah I guess sort um, of like land, how is your land being split? Yeah. Um, well, I'll just give the sort of the phase two, which is the longer vision, 10-year vision, and then just bear in mind that everything there is being built to in certain phases, but... Yes, yeah. Um, so... If I start with the with the native forest that Baz was talking about, our idea is to build a um, public glass library in there, which uh, would be amazing. Sorry, I just laugh because we've spoken about this and laughed about it many times, but it's a very serious idea. Um, but yeah, a glass public library in there, um, which what is sort of, as in like, as in it's a glass building. Yeah, it's right, a glass okay, so. building, which is important because it's in the native forest. Yes, so okay. obviously that will take a long time to be existing, but eventually you're reading, studying, 
and learning in within a native forest. And it's right next to the public footpath, so it's accessible mm, to the public. Sure. And then if you come down from there, past the pond, you get, we that's where the restaurant would be, which is about accessible natural food choices. So mm, mm. yeah, using ingredients, obviously grown on the farm, but also local ingredients to, uh, to create, you know, uh, good natural food but that's not premiumized and that is accessible to the local community. Mm -hmm. um, and then the event space, so a place where we can host large gatherings, um, again, at a very accessible uh, rate, um, hosting initiatives of amazing people um, in, within our movement. And then we've got the artisan food hub, which is where the fermentary comes in. Mm -hmm. And that's about giving access to uh, uh, small independents to establish or develop their um, their businesses. Um, so you know, a, a ferment someone fermenting things, someone preserving things, making shrooms, butcher, micro dairy, microbrewery, mm. and so on. Uh, really important, actually. Other than being, I think, quite a clever um, business initiative um, and adding on these poly-income streams, but also just for regenerating local food systems, mm. you can't just have raw produce. Uh, yes, you need to right. offer um, the sort of in-between, um, a restaurant and, a, and, and raw produce, and that really invites people in um, to, to, to experiencing other forms of food, basically and then we've just got accommodation surrounding all of that and then the the farm shop as well and that's everything i think yeah there's some other bits <laughs> and that's enough. everything yeah I mean, we've that's... spoken about the higher shy already so we don't have to talk about that <laughs> but yeah you know they're all visions it's likely everything i'm talking about will be will manifest differently yeah yes but yeah, we're we're soft testing them and we're seeing how they can work the restaurant might fail because you know some someone opens right next to us and we miss the we miss the sort of um, mm. the opportunity, and obviously we're then not going to go and, and you know, but um, that's that's how we can see it really working um, as a as a fully fledged project. But it 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 does sound you know to me in in hearing both of you talk like throughout all of this that you are like building those that kind of redundancy and resiliency into like everything you're doing, and there's not all eggs in one basket type you know, yeah. kind of ideas sitting here. It's actually like, you know, you've both used the term poly income, you know, it's enterprise stacking. It's thinking about like, I mean, just from thinking about what you're talking about there and like, you know, you roll forward to that kind of 10 year vision, you're employing 30, 40 people taking their, like, you know, potentially taking some yeah. of their, if not all of their livelihood from this area. And that's 55 acres. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I mean, also, that's incredible economically. Yeah. You talk about the hyperlocal and what that's doing, not only for yeah. you, you guys and what you're doing from a food perspective, but from an economics perspective in that local area and what you're able to be putting back in there, yeah. not just from great food, but also from supporting people's livelihoods. Yeah. That's, that's amazing. Incredible. And like yeah. thinking about, you know, other farms in the area, which might have, you know, we were talking about like people in your kind of surrounding area earlier, Mateo, and like people who are, 2,000 acres and it's struggling to support like one family mm. you know this feels like a, a bit of a kind of like change in yeah zeitgeist methodology thinking which is really exciting mm. like mm. yeah I don't know I mean like is that is that in your mind when you're kind of like thinking about this stuff is the kind of the employment and the, the kind yeah. of the supporting the local community in that way um 
Yeah, for sure. I think in, in farming methods and systems, that's a whole discussion of itself. But in general, as a business, I think it comes it comes down to sort of diversity thinking. It depends. You know, we have a very nature-centric way of designing our business, um, you know, polyculture versus monoculture and mm. things like that. Organizations will always thrive in diversity yes. and... Yeah. Um, you have to be careful about how you introduce diversity. It has to, you know, have important function and things like that. But uh, that will always, in my understanding and experience, um, work better. So we're always looking to think about how we can add on a supporting, diversified attribute to any any identity that we want to add into our business. And that's probably where all these people are coming mm. from. And yeah, you're right. I mean. Um, there's a ton of people as long as they're working well together <laughs> um, it happens and th that's also about learning how to how to work with people yeah. um, we're our artisan food hub will hopefully have you know 10 businesses in it mm. but we're mm. giving very affordable access to these people we're not going to manage their businesses no. um, it's, getting so, the right, yeah. it's getting the right amount of cooperation but without yeah. dependence mm. you know it's so that is so that people feel enabled more than they feel like they're necessarily totally integrated into our business. Yes. Yeah. You know, like the way you've yeah. always spoken about High Farm is as a, as a space. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah. it comes up a lot and that's yeah. just, it gives opportunities to people to come and flourish mutually within an organization, within an ecosystem mm. where, yeah, we're not, we're not going to be on their backs basically it's just making <laughs> it's just like making a win-win situation for everybody where everybody makes a modest return but that everybody flourishes together mm. Mm. that's I, yeah i guess i mean maybe to put the somewhat of a critical hat on if that's allowed um i guess we, we the, the word accessibility has come up and and it's something that dave and i i guess have like harked on a little bit about throughout the last few episodes of this podcast about trying to make food more accessible um and obviously Matteo, at the beginning you mentioned about shepton mallet mm. um which in that region yes is an area of sort of slight economic uh deprivation or depression compared to the surroundings but then you're obviously like you're just down the road from bruton yeah. and Froome, yeah. both incredibly sort of like wealthy areas where there's also lots of quite high-end farms and craftspeople, artisanal producers, arguably on quite a small scale and on a sort of very premium product. Um, Absolutely. I just wonder whether, I guess this speaks to a little bit about maybe the financing of your system in terms of like, how will you ensure it, the system to be accessible centrally? But then also it sounds like because you're also bringing in other people like in into this artisan craft market like these independent uh, fermenters let's say or micro dairy people do you think there'll be some sort of onus on them to also provide an accessible product rather than so whilst you want to be quite soft touch like how, i guess how are you going to enshrine accessibility and i know it's very early days to answer that question but i wonder whether that speaks a somewhat to where you're getting the funding for this project but also be how throughout this sort of five ten year plan how you're really enshrining that food accessibility so it's a very, very, very good question. <laughs> Not one I, I feel particularly equipped to answer, frankly, other than the fact that we have to acknowledge that we live in a, in a system that doesn't actually allow for that very easily. No, of course. So there are serious systemic reasons why all of that is just really, really difficult. So yes, I mean, I guess yeah. working across scales, I mean, we're hoping to build a movement and to help enable a movement to, to push policy and to, to change the way we actually think and work. 
So, I mean, apart from that, then I guess it's uh, how do you enshrine access for something without making a loss? Yes. You know, yeah. because hiring somebody and giving them a fair wage costs you a certain amount of money. For sure. You know, yeah. like if you want to hire a head grower who already probably the baseline at the moment is £25,000, mm. which is for a very highly skilled job, already too low. We want to pay more than that. For sure. Yeah. And we want to do that well. But then how do we then do that without increasing the price of our products? I mean, mm -hmm. it comes into that poly income thing. So it's supported by that. So it's taking, it's taking finance, taking money that is abundant in certain areas and putting it to areas of scarcity, which mm -hmm. is again, like a nature centric idea. It's a principle. Mm -hmm. yes, yeah, How will definitely. we enshrine it and make yes, sure it happens? Grand, yeah. No, no, I mean, I, I appreciate <laughs> it. And these are, the, these are the questions that these mm. uh, startup businesses and any business should be asking, like how can we improve access? Mm. And it's an open question, it's an open dialogue. And I guess it's also bespoke depending on every situation, like every person that comes into that system like if that, you know, it's about being communicative and receptive mm -hmm. and being ready to, to help people, I guess, um, whilst also not making sure that the business falls apart. You know, we're not in it for making excessive amounts of profit. We're just in it to have a good livelihoods for ourselves, create good livelihoods for others, produce really good food and give that at a fair price. And then I guess it's the gift economy stuff, you know, tiered pricing, mm. some like full total gift work, I think that we can do. So how you can give back to communities with education, like, I mean, having a public library, for example, as you walk past the land that you have free access to is also something that we can do. And we can, you know, that has knock on effects. So, yeah, I don't know if you have anything to add. Yeah, I just think that the access is obviously a, a really interesting topic, but it's interesting to look at not just financial access, I think mm. there are mm. parts of access kind of on the other side of the decision, which is, you know, there, there's people who don't have the um, cultural, educational, whatever you call mm. it, um, information um, to, to know how to make good food choices. And you, you, you need to work on both sides and make sure that you're giving people yep. access to it so I can afford it but a lot of people don't even want it in the first place. So, um, and I was, uh, we were talking earlier how a lot of that, I've learned a lot of that from growing, growing up and being a lot in Italy, which is that, you know, there isn't food access, real issues. In fact, the poorer tend to eat better um, in Italy. So we need to do a bit of both. And I really think there's a lot of work in helping people know how to want to make better food choices and, the demand then comes up, they are asking the right questions and then that helps the supply also work. There is also systematic issues in the supply which make food supply just not work right now to do with, you know, a lot of distribution. Um, you know, we spoke about that and how we can, can work a lot in the way we distribute food from taking it as close as possible from field mm -hmm. to the consumer. But yeah, it's important to also think about access in a sort of mental, social, cultural access. Mm. Um, most people, if we want to go into Shepton Mallet more, uh, I haven't done a study, but a lot of people won't even know what a natural food is. They won't know what it means, why they should choose it, why actually if you did the maths, you might want to spend a bit more on it. And how much of my disposal income should I spend on food because of the collateral impacts it has on my health uh, and my productivity? But yeah, that's just the other side of access, which I think is important to think about and that we really want to engage in for mm -hmm. sure. Mm -hmm. 
So just conscious of time left, and and, and one part we ha- we've kind of touched upon lightly, but what I'd really like to kind of just understand a little bit more about is so we're we've got a vast amount of trees that we're needing to procure and plant. We've got a year-long development project on a farmhouse. Uh, we've got the higher shire. Um, we've got restaurants, we've got fermentaries, we've got a, what sounds like it's going to be architecturally award-winning glass <laughs> cubist library. Um, when to most, most farmers are just going to be sitting in there and like listening to this and thinking, how are the, we're not going to get cancelled, so I'm not going to say it, on earth are you actually going to like finance this and think about it? When for a lot of like kind of small agroecological growers, they might be thinking about community supported agriculture, so people paying for a share up front, you're thinking about what subsidy schemes might give you, or you're thinking like a lot of farmers are, which is I'm gonna be absolutely mortgaged to the hill and I'm gonna be like trying to pay off like loans and things for the rest of my life. How on earth are you thinking differently and how are you going to go and actually like finance all of this? Like what's that looking like and what you know, what's the potential? Um, okay, so we're doing um, our first funding round uh, is starting actually like in two weeks. So, um, yeah, we're funding it, I don't know, I guess it would be privately um, as a normal business, I guess, would. Um, I think that there is... I don't know why, but for me, it feels very normal. That's mm. how I've raised money for, you know, my previous food business. And that's how I assumed I'd raise money for my next food business. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I don't know. The details of it involve, you know, putting together a good, attractive business pitch and um, crunching some numbers. And I'm very, we're very lucky because we've got two business partners who work in finance. And so they're schooled on how to do this. Mm-hmm. And... We're also lucky because there's like a bit of a shift in consciousness happening in, happening in the investment world, which is that, you know, uh, people don't want to invest in the same things as maybe they did 20 years ago. There are people who want to invest in things that help um, the, the wider abundance, let's say. <laughs> and so that's also why. But I, it's a really interesting topic because it's come a lot internally. Me and Basil mm. talk about it a lot because... The whole CSA, is that right? The, uh, kick. The CIC. kick. CIC mm-hmm. um, was an option at one point, yep. and but it comes with a lot of problems, is yep. my understanding as well. Um, so yeah, I don't know if that's enough information though. Is that no? I think it's just interesting what, because I think yeah. it is. You know, um, we're all sitting here as fairly new entrants into this world, yeah. and I think that that brings with it a potential for this what might be seen as innovation mm. and and to those to yourself and to your business partners and things mm. and say oh it's not it's just yeah. doing what we're doing but we're doing it in a slightly different realm mm. um and that's what i think's kind of like really interesting yeah. about it and, and what ideas we can bring from other livelihoods other worlds and things like yeah. that into this agroecological movement yeah um, and i think that's why you know, I, I'm really interested in, and I think Mike and I both are really interested in this because you say it just—it's almost like second nature to you. But to a lot of people out there, it's really not. And mm. a lot of people will be going, "Wow, I didn't even yeah. know that was a possibility." 
So I think what's really interesting is is that why, I mean, and I don't want to sort of criticise, but why isn't a grower being taught how to do this? In any other school of education, you're being, if you need to go up and set up a freaking business, you're taught how to raise money for it. So, <laughs> so maybe that's part of it. Um, then maybe there needs to be more business management involved in, in people because you're right, there are so many amazing people out there mm -hmm. with amazing ideas and it seems to be this gap, which is they can't find funding. Um, but and obviously loads of other industries outside food and farming, it's, you know, not really an issue. So I think it's, yeah, it's pretty interesting. Um, I, I don't know if you've got anything to add, Basil. Well, I, ju I just point out that on the master's degree that we just did, we did an enterprise model, mm. uh, module, and at no point are we thinking really about going to private investment. Uh, it's all looking at uh, charity money kicks, fundraising through yeah essentially public public money mm. um so i guess it feels to a lot of people even people that are teaching enterprise model modules in that kind of sphere that it's not necessarily an avenue mm. yeah i think i think one thing as well is that um it might be it might have negative sort of stereotypes we have this idea maybe of these private investors who will sort of suck the life out of your business and um and I don't know, force bad decisions, ask for returns on their investment and cripple your business. Um, and again, that's the, the, the answer to that is, is being good at finding the right people. Mm. Um, and, and there are the people out there for sure, but that might also be a reason why people are adverse to finding uh, in, investors and they'd rather get, I don't know, free money, I guess would be what, what a lot of- It's never free. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I guess I'd also just say that, you know, like, I mean, I think this has been reflected back to me from other people because I've been wrestling with this question personally and mm. asked you and Giacomo so many times, like, so they'll just, they're going to give us money mm. to do this. Mm. And then when I speak to other people, you know, friends of mine who are also come from a, from a private kind of more financy kind of background, they just say, well, actually, if you come up with a really good coherent plan, you know, you've, you've crunched numbers properly. You've got a clear vision, a clear plan. You communicate it extremely well. You're a team of people with decent credentials. Then why wouldn't they back you? Yeah. You know, and that, like you say, there's so many people out there. Just because they've got money doesn't mean that they don't care about yeah. uh, a transition to a more beautiful world. Of course, mm. they, you know, if you can still speak to people from the heart and you can still essentially share a vision with somebody which is mm. for something real like people are interested in impact they're interested in their legacy they're interested mm. in what kind of world they're leaving behind like everybody feels like that mm. you know it's just mm. feels like yeah that's kind of part of the angle and like you say there's a difference now in where money's moving we're no longer exclusively looking at capital in terms of money you know there's all these mm -hmm. other forms of social capital cultural yeah. capital environmental capital that uh you know that alongside the fact that people like um you know, we've got SDGs. How are we going to meet them? Local councils are now, you know, they have to be doing something. Local government, central government, they mm. have, uh, yeah. yeah, they've got to be making That's changes. Mm. And business has got to come along with that or they'll be... Kaput. Kaput. <laughs> <laughs> um, just one final quick question, because, yeah, I guess we are nearly at time now. Um, and it was something I scrolled down a little bit earlier when, uh, Basil, you were talking about your soil organic matter 
uh, or like carbon content, let's say, in the soil. Um, And a big thing um, that's kind of a big metric, I guess, that is upheld at the moment is is carbon and carbon sequestration. And I mean, obviously, it's going to be quite difficult to improve on what seems (laughs) to be impossible um, (laughs) soil organic matter levels anyway. Um, But I guess the question I wanted to answer was like, Obviously, that's one metric through which a farm, particularly an agroecological farm, could measure success, as it were. But I wondered whether, like, just in a sort of strapline way, what metrics would you two consider, like, this business a success? Like, how would you want to look at things like biodiversity increase or is it food accessibility? Like, what, what for you, your, your main sort of takeaways that you feel like this project that Hire Farm was really a successful thing in, let's say, five, ten years' time? Um, Yeah, I mean, um, a large part of what we're trying to do is to validate agroecology and natural farming uh, as as a way, as a way of producing food for people. So in order to do that, we need to get pretty comprehensive data on yields. So how much food are we producing per square meter? The nutritional qualities of that food. So we'll be measuring uh, using bricks, using plant sap analysis. So collecting that sort of data. Um, Biodiversity is a big one for sure. We don't have a particularly biodiverse farm currently. In fact, the ecologist described it as poor, which is (laughs) very, very useful. And then with a a vision which we've shared with him, he would estimate, you know, several hundred percentile increase in biodiversity. Mm -hmm. So all of that stuff is definitely, you know, very, very important. And it's, of course, social impact. Mm -hmm. Uh, How many people are actually eating this food? How many people are getting access to it? Um, and then I guess it's also measured on how many other farms and other people just come through and are touched by the ideas. I mean, mm, like it's a qualitative yeah. and quantitative analysis to validate as a whole agroecology as uh, a way of life, mm. more or less. That's perfect. Very succinct answer, Basil. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, I think that's amazing. Um, so, I mean, we're almost coming up to the kind of top of the hour and I just want to say you know thank you both so much this has been absolutely wonderful fascinating and can't wait to kind of follow the journey of Higher Farm and hopefully we'll have you back on in you know a year or so's time and like hear a load more about what's happening about your broken backs <laughs> yeah exactly um, about where things are going how your backs both are and, and everything but I mean one takeaway that I've got and just kind of a passing thought that like immediately hits me is the kind of Listening to you both talk and kind of, you know, Basil, you talking more on the kind of like the, the farming design and the kind of like the, the land use and things there. And, and Matteo, you talking eloquently around the business design and, you know, the, the poly income and all of this. And it's just how easily and how nicely those two stack over each other. And actually everything, all the language that you're using is so ecosystems, it's so ecological and it's being used on both sides of the fence. And that's just really nice to kind of hear and think about and how both of these things are just like, can interconnected interwebbed but are metaphors for each other and are being used on both of those different mm. levels so mm. I, I really like admire and like that so thank you so thank you both so much yeah thank you both so much for coming on it's been a pleasure it's been really good um and yeah we'll try and put some more information out on the instagram potentially we could borrow the the farm map or something that we can share with yeah, our yeah, viewers yeah. Um, or listeners rather um, just to give you all a bit more information Um, so just quickly uh, next month we'll be having in um, a few people to talk about universal basic income for farmers Um, that's Joe Dot and I think Hamish as well is joining us Um, so yeah tune in next time Um, that'll be the end of August I believe or mid mid August Um, yeah we're really looking forward to that and we've got a couple more guests lined up for 
future schedules as well. But for now, um, Dave and I will leave you to it. And um, yeah, thanks again both for coming in and see you soon. Beautiful. Thank you. Thanks a lot, guys. Yeah. Cheers. Thank you.